Welcome to ContenderCast, a leadership conversation centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for downloading. It's Justin Hahnemann on the Contender Cast for shining a light on bright ideas today. You guys are going to love my guest. Alyssa Rapp is on. Alyssa, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having I me. Know. It's a pleasure to be here. This is so cool. I loved, I was looking forward to meeting you. Um, I've, you know, like, like any other guest, I had fun doing my homework on you, found mutual connections in common. I love your story and like just your background in the entrepreneurship space, but also like what you're doing with it and your new book. So we're going to cover all that today. Let's start with this. So, so political science undergrad at Yale, MBA at Stanford. Holy cow. Um, but then you start this company Justin, called Justin, you know, you know, those degrees are just a piece of paper. <laughs> I know, but it's impressive and awesome. Um, how did you get into the startup space and the entrepreneur space? Was this always kind of your thing? But or or like how did this all start for you? Yeah, I think I've always been someone who likes to create things, whether I was a modern dance choreographer in high school and then continued on with dance in college. And I ended up working in politics uh, in between college and grad school, and I ended up running a political campaign and I created a sub-brand of that called the Ultimate Women's Power Lunch, which 19 years later is still up and running and thriving Seriously? in Chicago with 3,000 women annually. Yes, yeah, I think I'm oh, wow. someone who likes to create. That was cool, and it is cool. Um, but I, I went to business school out at Stanford knowing that Stanford was in the heart of Silicon Valley and having the dream of being an entrepreneur. And that ended up being a more, more of a roller coaster ride than I anticipated, but a great ride nonetheless. And uh, And so I went out there uh, hoping to, you know, follow my entrepreneurial dream, and that that was that was that. That's awesome. And I I read um in some of the backstory on you about bottle notes and talk about how that company like where that idea came from, and then I just and how you leverage social and some of the media aspects of it that just really blew it up. Sure. So. When I was at grad school at Stanford, I joined the wine club there, which is actually had sounds a little bit, it sounds love pure fun and it was fun. <laughs> yeah, and, sure. and yet I ended up also studying the industry through a supply chain management class and I did an independent study on it and did a summer internship for a, a boutique New Zealand import company. So I was really kind of diving into the industry from various different points in the value chain. And I ended up identifying a problem in, this, in the wine space that I thought my team and I could uniquely solve, which was this notion of... The millennial generation wine enthusiasts, the next generation wine enthusiasts wanted to consume knowledge and get recommendations in a different way than um, just using scores or what they were told to buy off of from a magazine. They really were getting peer-to-peer recommendations and wanted to understand their own personal tastes. And so this this notion of Bottlenuts 1.0 was let's build a an online wine club concept where we are going to have customers sign up for one of our clubs, whether it's the Explorers Club for the burgeoning enthusiast or limited addictions for the serious collector. And let's do all that. And let's source wine from boutique and estate wines from around the world that otherwise wouldn't have an easy time getting access to the next generation wine enthusiasts due to the very complicated supply chain in the space. And and let's make a personal match, almost like Netflix at the time and Amazon with recommendations based on people's personal taste profiles. And that was the innovation. And so we we did that by asking people uh, when they entered our site to tell us how much they salted their food or how they took their coffee or tea. And that gave us a sense of their bitterness sensitivity. And we got a taste profile snapshot. And then when they rated more wines, we got better and better at understanding how to hone um, their preferences. And so we would then send them more wines over time tailored to their personal taste. So 
that that was the original original business model. Well, and what what made it somewhat unique also was just the lever the way you leveraged technology at the time and personalization was unique and different. You were there ten years, right? Two thousand five, two thousand fifteen, and only I'd say a couple years into that did you see and you know, thinking back over my technology time, like just some of the CRM aspects come out, and you guys were ahead of the curve on that. Yeah, I think if anything, we might have been a little too early, which I say with humility. I've, I've learned in many businesses the hard way and the good way that there's a, there's market timing is super crucial and you either need it to be perfect um, for, for a win. And in the end, we were a little earlier than the market and there were some regulatory changes involving uh, third-party marketing firms like we were. And so we ended up not staying an e-commerce play. We ended up having to pivot to a media company, but but it was a also a great lesson, which I do talk about. I dedicate a chapter of the book to it. It was a great lesson and pivoting versus quitting. And, you know, it was a hard one, but a really, really good one. That's interesting. Yeah. And for those listening, where we're headed is uh, towards Alyssa's new book, Leadership and Life Hacks, Insights from a Mom, Wife, Entrepreneur, and Executive. You're going to hear about that in just a few minutes. Um, so how did how did the transition go out of that role and into, I'll call it, and, and maybe you correct me here, private equity slash venture capital and getting into that space and then into your current role of surgical? Sure. So I was a dot-com CEO for almost 10 years in wow. Silicon Valley, which is really kind of a long time if you come <laughs> to think of it. And uh, and then when we exited the company, you know, in 15, I took a couple of years. I just had our second daughter and took a couple of years to kind of regroup. I was teaching at Stanford Business School, a class on the dynamics of the global wine industry. And then I was also doing advisory work for two family offices and two private equity firms under the banner of AJR Ventures. So I had three people working with me and it was really advisory based, not building a new company at that point. So I guess technically it was, but (laughs) it didn't didn't want a big payroll, didn't want to have to do work for equity and cash, wanted just a a, a lighter stress level, but really great rich work. And I'm very proud of the work we did in those years was really gratifying. And so it was that two-year time frame that I really started to get to know private equity better, and I really liked it. I think that the uh, private equity is tough. Sure. It's numbers-driven. It's pretty breakneck, competitive. Yep. Yeah, but it's also, you know, in some ways, it makes it pretty egalitarian. How sure. fast did you run the mile? Did you increase EBITDA? What's your compounded annual growth rate? What's the internal rate of return going to be to the fund? And it doesn't matter sure. if you're Pink, purple, tall, short, black, white, male, female. It's a, in some ways very egalitarian. And sure. I like that about it in contrast to some of what I'd seen and lived in Silicon Valley and so in the Me Too era. So I, I really do feel like PE, I did feel at the time that PE could be a nice fit and an interesting transition as a, as a category, being a private equity back CEO versus a venture back CEO. So when 2017, when my uh, husband's father passed away unexpectedly, and we decided to move back to Chicago. I ended up saying to myself, "Okay, my our littlest was then two, our uh, eldest was then five. I was ready to think about being a full time CEO again." I ended up doing the rounds with private equity firms, and and ended up with a good fit at at the Sterling Partners in Chicago. And they at the time had coffee holdings. Uh, fancy sprinkles holdings. They had some really fun, sexy consumer stuff and consumer internet stuff, which was the right fit for me, it seemed. But in the end, ironically, where the fit was the best, where they had the greatest need, and I had, you know, it was still a PE-backed company in size and scale was going to be in terms of um, this healthcare company, Surgical Solutions, which was based in Deerfield, Illinois. Sure. Right. Your hometown. Um, and at least close. Uh, I have to ask, the, some of our listeners aren't, may not be as familiar with some of the, P, like what goes on within a PE firm and the structure of it. Talk about the type of person that 
it's a good fit for. You know what I mean? Like, what's the right culture fit for a PE firm uh, staff member? I'll call it. And then, what is it? Uh, explain the the nuances of PE. Sure. Um, so for for the venture capital world, I had lived in for the first decade. That's really early stage and seed stage investing, all the way up to late stage investing. And I was talking about primarily the people up and down the famed Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley. And there are also great venture investors in Chicago, New York, and LA and other places. But um, I was talking about the traditional venture capitalists that launched and backed the big tech giants that we, you know, are driving America's you know, technology growth today. But private equity is different. Private equity are firms as well with L limited partners as well, also with limited partners that are pension funds and state governments and all the rest as well. But they're typically looking at later stage deals and they're looking at deals of more mature companies, but where they feel like there's an opportunity to grow it in an accelerated fa fashion. Either it was a family owned business or the market dynamics have changed. So there's an opportunity to do what's called a roll up and pick off four to 10 of those players and roll them up into one entity. Or there's a distress situation they feel they can turn around and start taking up to the right. So private equity can works across categories and across stages. They can private equity investors invest in things as small as 15 or 20 million in revenue and as big as a couple billion. So it's a different typically a different level of maturity of the business, although not always in venture. And um, typically, the folks that work in a private equity firm are very finance driven. Right. They're very return on Absolutely. investment driven. They typically old, hold companies for four to seven years and not a, not a penny more. And they really, they really drive hard for buying at X and selling at more than X. Um, and in the end, that isn't always the case, but it is what they're, how they're wired to make it to make it go and how they make money and how their operating teams make money is when that happens. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that was very helpful. I appreciate that. So so you're there and then you decide to jump into this role 2018 January uh, as CEO of Surgical Solutions. And mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, maybe I missed it, but I didn't see any background in healthcare. I mean, like, <laughs> so, but I mean, then you go there and you, I mean, immediately you're making industry impact, not just because of your role, but just the things you were doing there and outside of it. How did you pivot, you know, to use your word from earlier and like, wh why choose that industry? Um, the industry chose me because of the private. Ah, I it, chose the course. private equity firm. They chose the industry. But but in the end, I think that I was interested in working in a space where there was double bottom line impact. Um, it's a it's a place that it's a company that's really on the right side of the industry trends. There are minimally invasive surgeries are on the rise in this country because the demographic trends. Boomers are looking for more restorative and corrective surgeries. We've got a situation where hospitals are increasingly being asked to do more with less. So there's a lot of margin compression on them. And we are in a situation where those um, the, com the, the combination of those factors means that hospitals are often looking for partners to help drive an, a return on investment for them and take big, heavy fixed costs and turn them into variable costs, if not extract costs from the system as a whole. And so, and we help most of our partner hospital partners do all of those things. And so when I realized that, you know, interestingly, I, I do, I have had to learn a lot about healthcare and my knowledge at this point after two years in the seat is very, is very narrow, right? I know a lot about the little narrow lane that we operate in. And I hope to know a lot about that narrow lane, but it is a narrow lane. It's a healthcare is a massive industry. It's a massively challenged industry. There's health tech, there's health supply chain, there's health, you know, equipment, innovation. There's 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 to many, many spaces that one could operate in in healthcare. We operate in healthcare services. And in healthcare services, um, 
I have been really, I've been impressed by the caliber of people at, on the other side of the table, our customers and our clients with whom we negotiate at these hospitals. They're being really asked to, to run business units, if you will, and scrutinize those business units with a degree of attention to detail that I think up to this point in, in American healthcare has not been necessarily done or done well. And they have very tall orders. They're smart people being asked to run institutions with razor thin margins as efficiently as they can. And wherever possible, it's our job to help them do more with less and to be their partner in, in driving profitability and growth. I love that. And you know, when you got there, and you talk about mentorship and whatnot, and, and the value of that and, and some of your previous roles and in your book. Um, was that a big part of being successful or finding success early? Or was this, a co- was this a company in a role where you had to make a lot of changes or one that you came into and needed to assess first and then, you know, and then help grow? Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. So from a mentorship standpoint, the board, my, the board of directors at Sterling, the Sterling Partners put in place has been terrific. Each ended up building bespoke relationships with each director and really getting coaching and guidance and thought leadership from each of them that helped shape the out has helped shape the, you know, my tenure as CEO unequivocally. And then in terms of, you know, being, am I stepping into a well-oiled machine or has it been a, a reboot? It was a reboot. I mean, <laughs> oh, it was a wow. reboot, almost like a startup is a reboot. Got and it. in that sense, it felt very consistent with my past life experience right. and, like and startups are hard. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, they're bumpy roads, but I'm not just cutting costs. Like I had to figure out a way to drive top line growth and bottom line benefits. So, you know, it's been, it's been challenging. It's been uh, fun and hard and challenging. But uh, something tells me you wouldn't have it any other way. So um, uh, something like that. Justin. I, mean, so I, I question that. Some you don't sound like it's something. You're not an eight to five person. Um, so which I love. Um, all right. So I, and we could spend, I'm sure, an entire like couple of episodes on both of those um, bottom notes and your current role and things you've done. I want to though get to your book and and talk to uh, I, I, some of the aspects of it, the life hacks, leadership and life hacks, insights from a mom, wife, entrepreneur, and executive. Um, why the book? Is this something that had been developing over time? You had content, you know, you've been collecting content in all your different roles, or like ha- talk about the background on this book. So it was a book that came to be because after I said yes to this job in December of 17, I looked in the mirror and said, oh God, what have I done? (laughs) I don't have a healthcare background. I haven't run a private equity back company before. I haven't done this in Chicago. It was like, oh God. And so I called my, it's in the intro, uh, my personal intro, not the intro to the book itself, which is by my very dear friend and mentor, Marissa Mayer, who's phenomenal. Um, But yeah, she's phenomenal. And and her intro to the book is actually amongst my favorite parts of the book, but um, truly, but in my intro, I talk about this whole notion of now what? I had said yes to the job. I called my friends who had been CEOs and asked for their reading turnarounds of CEOs of turnarounds, I should say, and asked for their reading lists. I went through their reading lists. I did a bit of a listening tour and walked around. I I went to Starbucks with some of the management team members at the time and started to listen and learn about what they believed the strengths and weaknesses were of the company at that point. I worked really, really, really hard to do deep dive in the industry by reading industry publications and over time attending conferences. And then in the first month and a half, I, you know, just put on my, put on scrubs, hit the road and started to meet my people (laughs) in the field, which I can never, yeah, dive in and I can never do enough of that to this day. And so the, the answer is, is that it is a really, really, um, immersive process to learn a new industry, to quote hack an industry. It's also a really immersive process to step into a new company and, start turning it around and start managing a new board of directors different from the one I managed the first 10, 10 years of my career. And so when I 
started to add up some of those insights. I was like, wow, this this might be a collection of stories or insights that could be worth something and valuable to others. If I could spare anyone the school of hard knocks, I'd be glad to do it. And I had written a couple of articles for Forbes.com over the prior couple of years, one on the work secret to work-life balance as an entrepreneur being athletics, and another that the, you know, the culture is a competitive advantage within a company, and Forbes books took note. And so they approached me and so the combination of them seeing a couple articles that I'd written that they themselves became foundations of a couple chapters, but then the rest I started with here in how I first approached the data capture and the information gathering for my current role. It's the amalgamation of those two forces that became Leadership and Life Hacks today. Well, and I love it because there's so much good advice here. Um, and I actually am I'm melding some of the life hacks of some of the the research I've done, some of the interviews you've you've done. You mentioned culture, and one of the things you talk about, and in, in some of your hacks, we'll call them, is do whatever you can to fast track culture. And um, talk about that and how important that was, either in your current role or in previous roles. So, in my current role, I don't know how I could have built trust with a team pretty quickly without rebooting culture. This is a company that had not had a strong CEO for a year. Our chairman, who's amazing, had been the interim CEO, and he wasn't living in Chicago, and he never intended to be the CEO. So he kept all the, he kept the train on the tracks, but you know he he knew that he needed to hire a full time CEO, and so the combination of those forces of coming in new, needing to build relationships with existing players, needing to bring in some new players. You know, I, I believe one truism to be true more than any in life, breaking bread matters. Absolutely. And so inviting people to meals at our home, inviting, you know, having catching up with board members, just making sure, well, in our internal standpoint, we had DoorDash. We have DoorDash Mondays <laughs> where people all have lunch together on Mondays. No, I mean, it really That's matters. Cool. Like you That's can really catch cool. up. Yeah, it helps. You catch up with people when they're a little less strung out and you can sometimes glean some good things that are... Um, fun and it builds trust and relationships and open lines of communication. So, you know, I, I did everything I could think of, put a Peloton in the office, repainted <laughs> the <it>. walls, <laughs> put some, put some inspirational quotes on the walls, like nothing changes if nothing changes. I mean, just simple <laughs> stuff like that that I did in order to say, we are really, really, really here to make a difference and impact our customers, our employees and our ourselves. And so let's go run at this together. And, you know, it's not easy and it's not perfect, but I think it's been working. I love it. Well, and again, on the book, 100 Tips for Achieving Your Goals, Maximum Efficiency and Impact. All right. So I've picked a couple of them that I wanted to ask you about. And then I'm going to ask you like, to pick two or three you think are like the, if you had to recommend to those listeners that maybe two or three others I didn't cover. All right. So um, I love this one on multitasking. And you talk about multitasking. It's not a choice, it's a necessity. And I love to multitask. I mean, like, it, I feel like I'm really good at it too. And I love what you say about it here in Life Act number 68. So talk about multitasking and uh, how it's part of your routine. So I think that a layered approach is required. So if I'm driving to the layered office, I schedule, <laughs> I, I schedule calls for the drive. If I have to be you know, if I'm if I'm making breakfast with my kids in the morning, it's a time to also practice their spelling. I, I try not to be staring at my phone when it's my quality time with my kids. It's imperfect. No one's perfect at that, myself included, but do my best to really be present. That's my 2020, 100 percent of my 2020 goal. But, but your work yeah, but present. Yeah, no question. Yeah. And uh, Mine's be focus. present. That's my work anyway. Yeah, yeah, same same concept. Yep. And so my uh, my thought on multitasking is it gets a bad rap, and if you can get two things done and and compress uh, time and build efficiency by making sure that every minute of a commute is well used on work calls or every, you know, or bake, you know, cooking, making eggs and 
crepes for your kids at breakfast is also spelling homework time. I mean, all that's just layering. And, and I don't know how life as a working mom and wife and executive and all the rest works. If, if, if you don't do you that, don't layer. Right? I don't know how it works. Layering. I mean, I'm not saying it's good or bad. That's a good I don't know how to do it. I like that. And you got to have quinoa, right? I mean, quinoa is one I mean, of your favorite foods. Listen, everyone I loves think, that right? hack. The, 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 the <laughs> post hack, post script hack to eat more quinoa. So I just think it's a very efficient snack. It's a snack <laughs> hack. Like if you just pop, if you have it in the fridge, you can just and you have eat some it, quinoa. You can put have a couple of spoonfuls. It's good on salad. It's good with eggs. It's good on its own. I think eat more quinoa is probably the, the one that gets the most chuckles, but I think it's yeah. actually probably I, the most pragmatic one. one of all. I think it's hilarious. Yeah. I love that good. one. Funny um, is good. Okay. <laughs> talk about mentorship. We, we hit, we hit on it earlier, but you talk about in number 45, clarifying what you're looking for in a mentorship. Talk, what does that mean? And I think for some of our younger up and coming career listeners that are always thinking about, Oh, I need a coach or mentor. You know, this one might be important. I think the key with having a mentor or being a good mentee is making sure that you are doing, you're making it easy to be mentored. So when I have mentors and friends and coaches who give me advice, I follow up with them. I let them know how their advice impacted me. I thank them for their time. I check in with them over time, not just because I need something or want something, but I'm just checking in and maintaining the relationship. And I think that's one thing that people could be better about is just really realizing that no mentor mentoring relationship should be transactional. It should really feel when it's working best, it feels organic and you so you know someone wants to help you because they have a relationship with you or said differently with with people I mentor. You know, if they've kept up with me over the years since the time they were a Yale summer bulldog on the Bay intern with me, and now they're a PhD at Stanford, and now they're looking for their first job reference, they want me to be one. It's a very easy thing to say. If I've kept up with them over the years, I feel of a relationship. It's it's an easy ask. It's of course I'll do it. I'd be delighted to do it. Not oh another one of these. So. <laughs> I think it's that that level of um, relationship management is key. And do, you know, little little sidebar here. Do you find though that you get that? Can I'll call it. A, there's multiple tiers of people that ask you for help, right? There's those that you've invested in that invest in you, and then there's those that maybe you don't know. They're suddenly asking for advice or coaching. Like, how, how do you filter? You know, where to spend your time as it relates to this topic. I mean, it's tricky uh, with the book out now. I I'm get sure everyone's more like, everyone advice, than I used to. Right? Well, no, I don't know about that, but they, I get more inbound than I used to. So I just have to be, um, I just have to be, you know, careful. I want to under promise and over deliver, not the wor- not the opposite, which is far worse. Um, but I think that, you know, I, we, it's like the same question of how do you pick your friends? Choose, choose wisely and cherish those nearest and dearest to you over, over the long haul. Cause they're really, really special, right? Make new friends, but keep the old one is silver and the other's gold. I mean, I think that's pretty damn true overall. No question. One of the other ones I like, and then I'm handing it to you for the last one or two, um, is life hack number 93. So you say to tape your favorite quote to your laptop. I mm-hmm. actually have mine taped in my car. Like every morning, just I read as that good. Phrase, just you know, as good. Two phrases I repeat every morning on the way, you know, talk about that. <laughs> Why? I mean, I think some people will be like, be like, what? But talk about that and how that came about for you. Because no one's responsible for getting your day started off on the right front. Except you. for you. Totally agree. Okay, that was easy. <laughs> it, 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 just, it just really makes sense to me to start your day off on the right foot. And I don't think that's anyone else's job but mine. I think it's my job to try my hardest to make sure my kids' days get started off on the right for, front or my husband's day. But from my day, my standpoint of my life, I feel like it's my job to that's get it going. I like that. Done. Easy enough. Um, 
Yeah, like I said, I have it on my car. And I started doing that actually a couple months ago. And it's been really good. Um, talk about, give me one or two more. like that. I, I chose a couple. Or any others that stand out for you as you think about advice for our listeners or things that, you know, maybe just a, a big idea or two that you've, you'd want them to take away? So the episodic versus daily balance comes up in every time I typically do an interview because this notion that to achieve balance, you need to think about how it can be achieved over several days or weeks, not um, not a single day is, is an imperfect answer, but a, a really meaningful one to me. And I think that if I try to be a great wife and a great mom in a given day, that's achievable. If I try to be a great CEO and a great mom in a given day, that's achievable. If I try to be a great CEO and a great wife in a given day, that's achievable. But being all those things and the perfect daughter and the perfect best friend and getting a four-hour workout and, and a great night of sleep and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and mentoring every entrepreneur that calls me like, that's not possible. It's impossible. So I try to nail two stakeholders a day. And I try to make sure that I get the whole balance thing achieved, whatever that means, all stakeholders satisfied over several days or a week. But every single day, I can't be everything to everyone. That's- and there's a tension to that, right? You have to manage the tension of knowing that today it's these two and not those three or four. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. And exactly. So you have to balance that. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Love it. Okay. Um, Alyssa, where can our listeners find you? How can they engage with you? How can they buy your book? How they can they oh, reach out to so you? Oh, you're so kind. Ah. So AlyssaRapp.com, A-L-Y-S-S-A-R-A-P-P.com is where all the book info and info on me is. The book is obviously on Amazon. It's on Audible. It's on Kindle. It's all <laughs> those places. So can't it'll be in Hudson Books in the airports in May, June, July, which is exciting. Oh, that's and I'm awesome. Proud of. That's really cool. Fun. See you at the airport. Yeah, it'll be good. Yeah, hopefully so. Wave. Yeah. Wave back. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh and then, uh, and then I think that if you know, it's Twitter, Alyssa Rap, sure. Instagram, Alyssa J Rap, all that stuff. I love it. Hey, it's been so great having you on the podcast. I love Thank your you content. I'm going to have you back oh. on down the road. I'd be honored and I'm grateful. Thank you so much for including me, and, and everything you're doing is pretty darn impressive, too. The Contender Cast is sponsored by Henderson Shapiro Peck. You can download additional Contender Cast episodes directly via the Apple iTunes App Store, the Google Play Store, Spotify, and other preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to be a guest on the ContenderCast, connect with us at contenderbrands.com. This is Brian Benson reminding you that every winner started as a contender. Contender.